Father, we <clears throat> truly thank you for the blood of Christ. As Peter said that we were saved, not by corruptible things of men like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. Priceless, valueless. In other words, you can't put a price on it. Because only the blood was powerful enough, powerful enough to save us of our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And Father, we can never thank you enough for that. And Christ, we're so glad that you came and took our place on the cross and you shed your blood for us. And Father, this morning we pray that your spirit would give us insight, wisdom, discernment. And Father, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth every day and all the time. Father, we pray your protection upon your people, upon this place. We pray that, Father, you would bind the enemy, keep away any interruptions, Father, disruptions and interference, God. And we pray that, God, your people would just soak it in, Lord, soak in your word into the very deep part of their souls, God. And we pray for those that might be watching, Lord, that they too would open their ears and their hearts to your word, God, that they might, they might receive all that you have for them, God. So we thank you, Father. We give you praise and honor and glory this morning. We thank you for the beautiful morning today, God. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning, church. How are you all doing? All right. Waves to somebody out in the East 40 over there. <clears throat> well, how's everybody doing this beautiful morning? Great. You look great. You sounded great. It's great to see you all out here on this beautiful Sunday morning. And we do pray that God would bless you today, as always, and that God's word would speak, but more importantly, that we would listen, because God's always speaking, but we're not always listening. Please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, and last week we started looking at the seven churches of Revelation, and each church had its difficulties. Each church was commended by Christ, and he had something to say about each church, and they all represent churches today. And last week, we looked at the church of Ephesus, and this morning, we're going to look at the church of Smyrna. Smyrna was the persecuted church. It's the, the church that suffered. And like I said, last Sunday, we visited the church in Ephesus. Now we're going to visit... We're going to go from Ephesus to visit the church in Smyrna. Leaving Ephesus and going to the church to insert Smyrna would be about 35 miles to the north of Ephesus. And you would enter, enter Smyrna through what was called the Ephesian Gate. Smyrna was a wealthy city, second only to Ephesus in the whole area. 
And it was a seaport like Ephesus. But it's unlike Ephesus. Because Ephesus today lies in ruin. And it's deserted. It's unpopulated. Smyrna, on the other hand, is still today a large city and has a Christian church. Remember, remember the church in Ephesus? It was a worshiper of the goddess Diana. And they worshiped these little idols. So it's not surprising that Ephesus lies in ruin today. And it's unpopulated. While Smyrna, on the other hand, is a large city and has a Christian church. Unger's Bible Dictionary says this about Smyrna. It was one of the finest cities in Asia. And it was called the lovely, the crown of Ionia, the ornament of Asia. It had a mixed population of about 200,000 people. And one third of them being Christians. The city today is called Izmir. And it's in Turkey. Let's begin with verse 8 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write these things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. In verse 8, Jesus introduces himself to the church in Smyrna as the first and the last. Now, in calling himself that, that is the first and the last, Jesus was describing himself as the eternal, the eternal one. And he is the eternal God who, who always is. He's always existed in the past and who always will exist in the future. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's also described in verse 8 as the one who was dead. This refers to his death on the cross. He's also the one who came to life, he said. Literally meaning he's the one who lives. The one who lives, referring to his resurrection. What a great reminder for a persecuted church to be reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ was still still in their midst and that he himself had already conquered death and that they should expect ultimate victory. Now, these were to be encouraging words to Smyrna, who was going through a great trial and affliction. And no matter what God's people go through, then or now, their Lord knows what they're going through as well. Jesus Christ knows their pain. He knows our pain today. He knows our suffering He knows our loneliness. He knows our need. Because Jesus has gone through it all. Hebrews 2.18 says, For in that He Himself, speaking of Christ, has suffered, being tempted, that is tested and tried, He is able to aid those who are tempted. Because Jesus has experienced all of those things, He's able to comfort us. Because He's been through it. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points, notice all points, in every way, tempted, tested as we are, yet without sin. In this we see Christ's Christ's passion. 
Jesus experienced being tempted. And his temptations were not the least part of his sufferings. It says he was in all points, that is always tempted as we are yet without sin. He faced all of the same testings that we do. In this we see Christ's compassion. Because he is able to come to the rescue of those that are tempted. He, he is touched with a feeling of our infirmities. He feels our infirmities. He's a sympathizing physician. He's tender and he's skillful. And he knows how to deal with tempted, troubled souls. Because you see, he has been himself sick of the same disease, not of sin ever, but of temptation and trouble in his soul. The remembrance of his own sorrows and temptations makes him aware of the trials of his people and ready to help them. Here also notice, first, even the best Christians are subject to temptations. And to many temptations. And while you and I are in this world, we must never think that we will be totally free from the temptations of this world. The tryings. The testings. Secondly, temptations bring our souls into such distress and danger that they need support and they need help. And thirdly, Jesus is ready and he's willing to rescue us. To rescue those who, under their temptations, call out to Him. Lord, help me. He became man. He was tempted that He might be qualified in every way to help us. To relieve us. To rescue us. His people. Verse 9. He says, I know your works. Tribulation. And poverty. But you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Notice again, Jesus says, I know, I know. That should comfort us, and it should as well warn us. It should comfort us in the fact that Jesus knows the trials that we're under. He knows the afflictions that you're going through today. But at the same time, warning that he knows those who have grown cold and are in sin and have left their first love. We can't get over on Christ. Jesus says, hey, I know all that you've done. I know all that you are suffering and have suffered He says, notice here in verse 9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty. He assures them that that he knows about the oppression that they're under by their enemies. He's aware of their afflictions and the result of those afflictions. The word used here for poverty is the word for abject poverty. It means It doesn't mean they were just poor. They were more than poor. They were hopelessly poor. 
The Christians here weren't just poor, they were hopelessly poor. In other words, complete helplessness. That was the level of their poverty. Sometimes this word poverty was translated beggar. Because of the helplessness of the individual and begging would be the only way they could survive. That's how poor the people were here in this church. They had absolutely nothing. And the reason they had absolutely nothing, their tribulation was the cause of their poverty. It was the cause of their hopelessness. Hebrews 10, 34 and 35 says, For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession of yourselves in heaven. In other words, you suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all that you owned was taken from you, think of this, they accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you. And those things will last forever. In a similar situation at Smyrna, it would seem that Jewish and pagan mobs were robbing the property of the Christians. They were robbing the Christians of their belongings. The Greek word for tribulation here, it's a strong one. It's a strong word. It means pressed or squeezed. And our word for tribulation comes from the Latin tribulum, which means a flail, which a flail was used in threshing grain. A flail was a hand threshing tool made of a wooden handle. And at the end of that wooden handle was a piece of stouter and shorter stick that hung there so that you could swing easily and crush the kernels of wheat. So in this word tribulum, we have these two pictures. The Greek word suggests the figure of a wine press to squeeze and to press. So again, the word suggests the figure of a wine press where the juice was squeezed out of the grapes. And then the Latin word gives a picture of grain being beaten with a club to break the kernels out of the husks. So together, these two words suggest the nature of their tribulation. They were being pressured and they were being beaten. Pressure and blows. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Maybe knocked down, but we're not down for the count. And it's believed that as many as 6 million Christians were martyred for their faith during the Roman government's attempt to wipe out Christianity. Now, outwardly, the church of Smyrna was clearly poor, hopelessly poor. But what does Jesus say? You are rich. You are rich. Why? They were rich because they were laying up their treasures in heaven. So they, were, so they possessed the true riches. The things that can't be taken from us. Paul also wrote that true ministers of God would be 
as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. 2 Corinthians 6.10 They may have been poor materially, but man, they were rich spiritually because they lived for eternal principles that would never change. You see, beliefs change all the time. One day people say, well, I believe this and now I believe, but principles never change. Principles never change. They live for eternal principles that would never change. Riches that could never be taken away by this world's suffering and persecution. And their suffering, for Jesus' sake, only increased their riches. There was another problem. Jesus also said, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not. Ephesus was under attack by men who said they were apostles, but they really weren't. These persecutors at Smyrna were Jews by race and religion, but they weren't truly sons of Abraham. They weren't the spiritual sons of Abraham. Only by birth, physical birth. The Jews persecuted the Christians big time, which we find recorded in the book of Acts. By the second century writings and and by the second century writings of, of Justin, Martyr and Tertullian. The Jews were strongly against the church and the gospel. And these Jews were directly involved in persuading the Roman officials of of the city to execute Polycarp, who was the pastor at at this time. Now, Polycarp was in his 90s when they tried to kill him by burning him at the stake. And history says, as they piled the wood around Polycarp, The executioner said, I hate to see an old man die. Just renounce Jesus Christ and you'll be set free. Polycarp answered, for over 80 years, I have served my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And not once has he denied me. I shall not deny him. The executioner replied to Polycarp, the fire is going to be hot. Polycarp said, not nearly as hot as the fire you'll experience. Then the executioner lit the pile of wood. And at first the flames leaped up around Polycarp, but they didn't touch his body. And then when the executioner saw this, he took his spear and he ran it through him. And then the blood poured out and put out the fire. The Christians took his body after this and they buried him. These same false apostles claiming to be worshipers of God, but they weren't. They had their synagogues, but God said they were synagogues of Satan. And in John 8, 39, the Jews said to Jesus, hey, Abraham is our father. Well, Jesus could turn rocks into the, the, you know, sons of Abraham. We're, 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 Abraham is our father. Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. 
Any religious person or group, Jewish or Gentile, that doesn't accept Jesus Christ as God's son is without a doubt acting contrary to God's will. Then we have the Lord's exhortation in verse 10. Notice Jesus says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Smyrna's present persecution was just the beginning of worse things to come still for the church. As well as other churches throughout the centuries. And it was ultimately Satan who would cast the Christians into prison on Christ's word that said that you may be tested, that you may be tried. Now, the Greek verb tested was used of testing materials in a fire, in the fire. And the fire was used to test these metals to make sure they didn't have any alloy or any dross. That says anything that wasn't pure silver or pure gold. And so the souls of the believers would be tested in the furnace of affliction. Malachi 3.3, it says, He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. Notice, that they may, uh, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. But Jesus said, Fear none of these things that you are about to suffer. Now, through the years... There's been a lot of biblical controversy as to whether or not the church will go through the tribulation. But it seems that every real church must endure some level of tribulation. In Acts 14, 22, it says, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Second Timothy 3, 12, Paul said, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But as Paul said, not even death can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Or can it take away the martyr's crown, which is the victor's crown that we've been promised for those who are tested and endure and are found approved, James 1.12 says. Which will far out Far, by far outweigh the testing that he's called us to go through in the fire in this life. The tribulation, it says, Jesus, Jesus said, would last 10 days. Now, whether this is literal or symbolic, we don't know. But what this indicates is a short period of time. It points out that there will be a time of suffering, but it will have an end. God would see to it that they didn't suffer more than they could handle. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That God will not give us any, any more than we can handle. The purpose of this passage is obviously to prepare the church for severe suffering with its benefits. But yet assure them that it would be very brief and passing in comparison to eternity. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 
this light affliction compared to eternity, he said, it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In Psalm 30, verse 5, it says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Got a sky visitor. (laughs) The problem of human suffering, like what's mentioned here in the message to Smyrna, it has troubled the minds of men and women through the centuries. One of the main questions unbelievers ask is this. If God is love, why then do innocent people suffer? Now for Christians, it's hard to understand why the ungodly suffer. The real question is, why should the godly suffer? The answer to this question is is woven all through the Bible. We see it answered in many different ways. The answer to this question is really, like I said, woven all through the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. It's it's the result of God's will for us. And the will of God is always holy. It's always right. It's always good. That's what we need to understand when it comes to suffering. Our God doesn't make any mistakes. An explanation is given in the scripture for different sides of Christian suffering. Now, in some cases, suffering in the life of a Christian might be for disciplinary reasons. As shown in the way that God dealt with the church of Corinth. In other cases, it may be preventative. As shown in in Paul's thorn in the flesh. Paul was kept from being carried away by pride in the the divine relation that he had when he got to go up to the third heaven and and God gave him this thorn in the flesh to humble him. So he couldn't go around and say, well, you may have had that experience, but brother, I've been to the third heaven. Have you? Suffering is also shown to be in Scripture as teaching the child of God what couldn't be learned any other way. And, you know, I think... A lot of times that's why God gives us afflictions. I mean, sometimes that's the only way we learn. (laughs) When God brings a heavy trial into my life or some affliction. Because I wouldn't learn the easy way by trusting God's word and and, and accepting it and doing it. So, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll use another method of teaching. I'll bring some hard experience to your life. Even Jesus is said to have learned obedience by the things which he suffered in Hebrews 5.8. And for Christians in general, the experience of suffering is instructive. It teaches us. Paul writes this in Romans 5, 3-5, and I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. It says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
Another reason for, surf- for suffering is found in the fact that Christians, through suffering, can have a better testimony for Jesus Christ. And this was true of Paul, whom it was said of in Acts 9.16, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. The experience of the church at Smyrna, even though it wasn't something they wanted, it was no doubt designed by an infinitely wise and loving God for their good, as well as for the better testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The writer in Ephesians of Psalm 119 says it very well. And, you know, don't know for sure, but it sure sounds like David wrote, wrote this, this psalm. Psalm 119.67, the writer says, Before I was afflicted, notice, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Oh, but now I keep your word. And again, sometimes that's how the Lord has to get us back on track. Some affliction, some illness, some trial, some hard thing in my life because I haven't been in the word. I, I've strayed from the word. And, but, but now that I've had this affliction, it's drawn me back. It's brought me back to where I should be. So now I keep your word because I don't want to go through that again. He also wrote in Psalm 119.71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Notice that. That I may learn your statutes. Again, notice it's instructive. It's not good at the time. It's not good that when we're going through it. But, but after I've learned what I was supposed to, Ah, now uh, that was good for me that I have been afflicted. It's good that I went through that tough time in my life so that I could learn your statutes, which is another word for God's word. Psalm 119.75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right. Notice that. Whatever you decide to do is, is right. Notice, and here's an important part, in that faithfulness you have afflicted me. The psalmist said, now I keep your word. It was good for me that I was afflicted. I've learned your statutes. Your judgments are right. And in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Faithfulness. Notice, a lot of times we think God's afflicted us because he's mad at us. He's angry at me. I've blown it. He hates me. He doesn't love me anymore. That's why he's afflicted me. I've done something wrong. I'm not reading enough. I'm not praying enough. I'm not, you know, some of those things might be the cause of it, but it's not necessarily the reason for it. It's, in, it's because God is faithful. It's because he loves me that he's afflicted me and because it's best for me and it's good for me and I can learn from it and I can grow by it and I can have a better testimony because of it. Jesus asked, is the servant above his master? Should I be excused or immune to suffering? No, not at all. 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 12 says this, 
Paul said, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecution, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and Lystra. What persecutions I endured. He said, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He said, no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. 1 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, we're appointed to them. The trials and the testings that come to our lives as Christians are not accidents. They're appointments. Just think if there were such a thing as accidents In the rule of God. I'd have to worry about, oh man, I hope this doesn't happen. I hope, oh, I hope that doesn't get by God. I hope, no. There are no accidents in the Christian's life. God knows exactly what's going on and knows exactly what he needs to do and why it needs to be done. Philippians 1.29 says we must expect to suffer for his sake. Persecution is not unfamiliar to the believer. It's a normal part of the Christian life. Paul had repeatedly told the believers this very thing while he was with them. And we need to understand that the Christian life isn't always easy. And I'm sure you have all experienced that. It's not always easy. Especially when we're trying to live for Jesus Christ. And if we don't understand that the Christian life isn't, all easy, isn't always easy, we will be discouraged and we will be defeated. And we know that behind these persecutions is Satan. He's the one. Because he's the enemy of the Christian He's the enemy of God. Now he knows he can't get to God, so guess who he's going to go to? His ambassadors, his messengers, his servants, his people. He's the tempter, the Bible says. And he wants to ruin us. What he really wants to ruin is our faith. He wants to ruin our faith. Suffering and affliction is what separates the true Christian from the church goer. The possessor from the professor. It costs to be a dedicated Christian in many places. Not quite here yet, but it could go that way. Not to the degree the church of Smyrna was experiencing, but who knows. But as the end times grow closer, the pressures are going to become greater. Persecution will also increase and God's people need to be ready. And as we all know, our world is rapidly changing. And if this election goes south, 
our country could very well change forever and could possibly never be the same. It's changing day by day. A while back, it was North Korea and Iran building up their nuclear arms. They were all rattling their swords and threatening nuclear war. After 9-11, we were worried about our churches, our sporting events, our theme parks, our malls, and our places where large crowds of people meet would be targeted areas for nuclear war. But isn't it something how it's happened with a pandemic? Theme parks, malls, places with large, large crowds, churches, sporting events. But Jesus said, do not fear any of those things. Because they had nothing really to fear in this persecution. It couldn't rob them of their priceless, eternal blessings in Jesus Christ because they were in the Lord's hands. And we always need to remember what He allows is designed by His infinite wisdom. The psalmist said, In faithfulness you afflicted me. Then we have the invitation in verse 11. Jesus said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. In closing the message here to Smyrna, Jesus promised, He that overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, in this word overcomes, it's it's waiting upon the Lord. It's living by His faithfulness. And I see many today trying to overthrow things. He who overcomes in Christ shall not be hurt by the second death. It's overcoming. It's enduring. Not overthrowing. What gives the better testimony? Overcoming or overthrowing? The second death is mentioned in Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 when all the world, except for Christians, will stand before or stand at the great white throne judgment. And the books will be open. And it says, Whosoever name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. But those who overcome this life, those who overcome the things that we go through and receive Christ will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death, the great white throne judgment has no power. You want to be in the first resurrection, church. But those who overcome, again, this, uh, the, uh, those who overcome this worldly life, 
can say like Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will come to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And it's worth mentioning that Jesus' words to the church of Smyrna had no words of rebuke. He had no words of rebuke to the church of Smyrna. The same trials that afflicted them assured them from any impurity or compromise with evil. In closing, it's been suggested that this letter conveys Jesus giving words of joy from a reigning Savior to a suffering church. First, a living Savior who controls everything. Verse 8. Second, a living Savior who knows all things. Verse 9a. A living Savior that evaluates all. He said, notice, you are rich in 9a. A living Savior who sees all. Verse 10. He says, I know. Verse 5, a living Savior that regulates everything. In verse 10, 10 days. He put a limit on it, 10 days. A living Savior encourages them all. Verse 10, do not fear. And then a living Savior promising life at the end of all. Finish this message with these words from Oswald Chambers. Regarding the call of God. He said of the call of God. It has nothing to do with personal sanctification. But being made broken bread and poured out wine. God can never make us wine. If we object to the fingers that he uses to crush us with. If God would only use his own fingers. And make me broken bread and poured out wine in a special way. But when he uses somebody whom we dislike or some set of circumstances to which we said we would never submit and make those the crushers, we object. We must never choose the scene or method of our own martyrdom. If ever we're going to be made into wine, we'll have to be crushed. You can't drink grapes. Grapes become wine only when they have been squeezed and crushed. It's overcoming and not overthrowing what God has allowed in our life. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word, God. We thank you for the church in Smyrna, Father. Lord, may we be, may all your churches, Father, be like the church of Smyrna, God. May we be overcomers, Lord, and not overthrowers. Knowing that you, God, has either either arranged or designed for all the things in my life. You've allowed them for for some reason greater than I can understand. But Lord, you're all wise. You're all knowing. You regulate all things. 
And when we're in that fiery furnace, you have your hand on the thermostat. You know when to increase it and you know when to turn it down because you know just how much we can take. And Father, may we have our eyes upon you. We can see what's happening around us, God. And we know that we're living in the end times. And we know, Father, that you could give the word at any moment. And Christ will gather up his bride. And so shall we be with him forevermore. And if you're not a believer this morning, this is no time to be waiting or thinking there will be a better time to receive Christ. Today is the day. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Because you don't know when Christ is going to come for his church. And you don't want to be here through the great tribulation. It will be a literal hell on earth. If you're here this morning and the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart and you recognize, I need to receive Christ. I need to make Him my Savior. I want to know for sure that when I stand before God that my name will be found written in the Lamb's book of life. And I'll be, I will be allowed to enter in to the presence of God. I'm going to say this prayer out loud. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you repeat it to the Lord Jesus Christ with all of your heart. Dear Jesus, I confess to you, I am a sinner. Please forgive me for all of my sins. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to walk with you all the days of my life. And thank you, Jesus, for saving me and dying on the cross. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you said that prayer, if you don't have a Bible, um, let us know. We can get one to you. And uh, again, find a church that teaches God's word. Not any church, but a church that teaches God's word. And you, and you need to, and you'll have to do a little studying and searching on your own to do that. But um, you know, please do that. Uh, before we um, finish up here, I want to remind us that we're going to... Uh, We'll be in Job 22 next Wednesday, and uh, it'll be Eliphaz's last speech to Job. Also, real quick, uh, the children's ministry, they have some treat bags for the kids. So if you uh, will take your kids or the kids go over to the lawn area, you will, the, our, our children's ministry will be glad to give the kids a treat bag. So don't forget that. And lastly, I want to pray for the offering before uh, I step down, and then we'll have our last song. Father, we thank you for... This day, we thank you for the beautiful weather, God, and we just uh, pray, God, that your word would go out and that people would come to know Christ, God, and that uh, one by one, God, 
uh, we would just, th- th- our light would increase, God, in this land. And Lord, it would just uh, have a great impact on everyone around us, God. For those that don't know you, God, may your spirit just invade this land and, and just uh, bring conviction to their hearts, Lord. We thank you for the offering we're about to receive, Lord. We thank you so much for your faithfulness during these These uncertain times, God, and um, the difficult times that I know many are going through. But again, we thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, and for the faithfulness of your people, God, who give unto you because they love you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank Chris for joining us today and helping us out with worship.